Hey, take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. And I want to speak to you today on this subject. A true disciple. Are you a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Can you go to heaven when you die without being a disciple while you live? That's an interesting question, isn't it? These are super important questions. And they literally, literally can impact your destiny in life and in eternity. I'm afraid that the American church is toying with the definition of this word disciple. And we're even seeking to turn Jesus into something he's not. David Platt, in his book Radical, wrote this. We are giving in to the dangerous temptation to take the Jesus of the Bible and twist him into a version of Jesus we are more comfortable with. A nice, middle-class American Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism who would never call us to give away everything we have, a Jesus who would not expect us to forsake our closest relationships so that he receives all of our affection, a Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion that does not infringe on our comforts because, after all, he loves us just the way we are. A Jesus who brings us comfort and prosperity as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. God help us if we toy with the definition of disciple, and God help us if we try to refashion Jesus into something that makes us feel more comfortable and more at ease. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is who he is. And we can't change him, and nobody can change him. He is the great I am. He is the Savior of the world. He is the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. And we are here on this earth to submit our lives to him and to honor him in everything we say, everything we think, and everything we do. It is vitally important that we wrap our minds around what the New Testament writers meant when they inserted the word disciple into their documents. Now take your Bible. We're looking at Mark chapter 8. In this text today, we're going to look at Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. In this text today, Jesus has taken his disciples 20-plus miles from the Sea of Galilee to Caesarea Philippi near Mount Hermon. Now, understand this. I've been to Israel. Many of you have been to Israel. And to go from the Sea of Galilee to Caesarea Philippi, it's almost an incline the whole way, the whole way. Rocks everywhere. It's not an easy walk, I promise you. Now, last week, we saw where Jesus took his disciples on a 35-mile trip, a 30, 30, 35-mile trip to Tyre on the Mediterranean coast. And here he takes them 20-plus miles to Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi was the northernmost part of the, the Galilee region. 
It was an, it was an area known for its pagan spirituality and, and for its idolatry. If you've been there, you know that right there on this little cliff is a bunch of niches carved out in rocks where they would put their idols and they would worship those idols, many, many idols. And so here we are today, and Jesus has taken them to this place. And it's so interesting that Jesus chose this location to define his identity, his life mission, and his expectations for those who would be his disciples. Now, what he taught them would have huge implications for their lives and huge implications for our lives. Jesus asked these men a simple question. Who do people say that I am? Look at verse 27. Jesus went out uh, along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked the question of all questions. Jesus continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Hey, Peter, who do you say that I am? Hey, James, who do you say that I am? John, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? I love what Peter said. Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. You realize this is the first time in the entire New Testament that anybody had called Jesus Messiah. The first time. Peter said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. For over 3,000 years, the Jews had waited for the Messiah to come, and he was here. And Peter said, you are that Messiah. Now, that is a wonderful moment. But on the heels of that confession, Jesus made this declaration. Look at verse 30. He warned them to tell no one about him. You say, well, why? Because Jesus wanted to reveal his identity when people were not so mixed up about who he was. And they were at that time. That's evident in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now here, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. That is a prophetic name for the Lord Jesus Christ. If you were to go to Daniel chapter 7, you would discover that Daniel, writing hundreds of years before Jesus ever came to this planet, was talking about the Son of Man, and the Son of Man ruling and reigning over an eternal kingdom forever and ever and ever. And Jesus is saying, when he uses his name, I am that one. I am the Son of Man. I am the Messiah. You're absolutely right. But you've got to understand something, guys. I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to be raised from the dead, after three days. Verse 32, and he was stating the matter plainly. You know, I often wondered how Jesus 
got this message across to the disciples about his suffering, about his death and his resurrection. And you, if you were to go to Luke chapter 24, when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, to Emmaus after his resurrection, he's meeting with some disciples, and the Bible says he opens the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, and he preached to them about his death, his burial, and resurrection right out of the Old Testament. Now, I've got to believe that Jesus was preaching to the disciples right here using the Old Testament, showing them maybe Psalm 22, maybe Isaiah 53, showing them that, in fact, the Messiah would suffer, the Messiah would die, and the Messiah would be resurrected from the dead. But I want you to notice the next verse. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. The same Peter who said, you are the Christ, the Messiah. He pulls him aside. And this disciple rebukes the Messiah. He rebukes him. You see, in Peter's mind, the Messiah would come to relieve suffering, not to suffer himself. And so his idea of messiahship affected his understanding of discipleship, right? And I'll tell you this, folks, the same is true today. If you don't understand who Jesus is, it will really, really, really affect your ability to follow him and be his disciple. And look what happens next. But turning around and seeing his disciples. You know what Jesus did? He turned his back on Peter. And he looked at the rest of the disciples. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. The rebuker gets rebuked. He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest. But man, Satan... From the very beginning, when, when he, he took Jesus to, to uh, the wilderness and tempted him, from the very beginning, he was offering Jesus the crown without the cross. And that's exactly what Peter was offering to Jesus and wanting for Jesus. He wanted him to have the crown without the cross. And, and then notice this. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Now, that brings us to verse 34. Verse 34, Jesus begins to unpack what it means to be a disciple of his. Look, look at it, verse 34. The Bible says, and he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now listen, let me say this very Make sure you get this. Every disciple is a Christian. And every Christian is a disciple. That's the truth, folks. The idea that you can can be a, 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 a follower of Jesus, that you can be saved without being a disciple is a total misnomer. It is a total uh, re, uh, uh, rejection from what the Bible really teaches about discipleship. Every disciple is a Christian, and every Christian is 
a disciple. Now, here's the truth I want you to lock in your heart today. A true disciple is committed to Jesus. A true disciple is committed to Jesus. So Jesus summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must, circle the word must, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now I want you to picture in your mind the Lord Jesus surrounded by his disciples, surrounded by a crowd of people, And what he said at that moment had significance for every person who was around him there at Caesarea Philippi. He was inviting all of them to be his disciples. Nobody then or now would ever drift into discipleship. You don't drift into discipleship. You commit yourself to Jesus it is, a, it is a commitment that you make from your heart. He wanted them to understand that he, he wanted his disciples to be committed to him, and it was a matter of life and death for them. Now, notice the first thing he says. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Now, this, is, this talks about a strong, a strong, decisive moment in a person's life where once and for all they deny themselves. It's almost, it's a negative side of Jesus' command on commitment. Denying self is not the same as self-denial. For instance, a totally lost pagan person can deny themselves cokes. They can deny themselves uh, nuts. They can deny themselves a lot of different things. So listen, self-denial is totally different than denying self. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's calling for self-denial. He's calling for disciples to be willing to say no to themselves, no to their wants, no to their needs, no to their agendas, so that they could embrace his agenda and his desire and his purpose for their lives. Then he he says, not only deny, but he says, take up his cross. And, And once again, this calls for decisive action. It is a command. Both deny and take up his cross is a command in the Greek language. It's the positive side of Jesus' command of commitment. Not only does he say no to his will and his purpose and his way, but he says yes to God's will and God's way. That's what it means to take up the cross. God forbid that we cheapen the picture of the cross here by saying that, well, my cross is losing my job. No, it's not. That's not what Jesus is saying. My cross is having a cranky spouse. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. My job is having this disease that I'm having to to, to deal with on a a constant basis. It's a pain of a disease. That's not the cross Jesus was talking about. When, When Jesus used this cross metaphor, He was painting a picture for everybody around him there at Caesarea Philippi. See, they had seen people walk out of their villages with a cross on their back, but they weren't coming back. 
They were going to the place of execution. They were going to the place where their life would be snuffed out. They're leaving their life that they once had. They're living, leaving their loved ones they once had. And they were going to die and be executed on a Roman cross. That was a picture that Jesus was planting in their eyes. Now listen, this is exactly what Jesus wants us to understand about discipleship. Discipleship is being willing to leave the life that you've enjoyed in the past and to submit your life fully and completely to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Can I ask you a question today? Have you done that? Have you submitted your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Have you surrendered your agenda to him? Have you surrendered your desires to him? Have you surrendered your hopes and dreams to the Lord Jesus? Have you been willing to say, Jesus, my yes is on the altar. Whatever you want for me, that's exactly what I want, Lord. Nothing more, nothing less. And, and so Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must. Remember, we, we circled that word must, right? He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, it's interesting. When you come to follow me here, it, it's a different tense verb. The, the, the verbs for take up his cross and deny are, are, are verbs that, that speak to, to uh, a permanent action taken in the past. But this one is a present tense imperative. Jesus is literally commanding those who would be his disciples, I want you to follow me for the rest of your life. I want you from day to day and moment by moment to follow me. It, it literally means to walk the same road Jesus walked. That's literally what follow me means here. He used that same concept in John 10, 27, when he said this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That's what a disciple does. A disciple follows the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to follow Jesus means that the, the, the disciple must be willing to risk being misunderstood. The disciple must be willing to risk being rejected. The disciple must be willing to risk being persecuted. The disciple must be willing to risk even being martyred for the faith. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It doesn't mean that everything's going to go wonderful in your life. Listen, friend, you don't get your best life here. You get your best life in heaven. You got to remember that, okay? And so we may go through difficulties. We may go through struggles. In fact, Jesus said in John 15, verses 18 to 21, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I've chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Let me ask you this. Are you prepared to be hated by the world? Are you? He goes on to say, verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also 
persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. A true disciple is committed to Jesus. That's exactly what he expects out of anyone who says they're going to heaven. Are you committed to Jesus? Or have you just invited Jesus into your life to follow your agenda and to make sure that your way is smooth and clear and easy? That's not the way it works. Are you a true disciple of Jesus? Now, it's interesting, as we look at the next few verses here, verses 35 to 38, each of those verses starts with the word for, F-O-R. Each of those verses. It's like the Lord Jesus wanted to unpack for us what this real commitment looked like, and he took this idea of commitment that he expressed in denying self, taking up cross, and following him, and he took it to another level and he explained it. So he wants to make sure, wanted to make sure that every true disciple understands what genuine commitment to him looks like. And I want you to understand it today. Whether you're a teenager, whether you're a, a, a senior adult, whether you're a middle-aged adult, whether you're a young adult, it's very important that you understand what true discipleship is. Now, there are three thoughts that sort of flow out of the next four verses. A, a description, a, a motivation, and a logic for commitment to Christ. You say, Pastor, why should I be committed to Jesus? Why should I give up my agenda and follow Jesus' agenda? Why should I put myself at risk in identifying with Jesus when he is so rejected by our world system? When the Word of God is maligned in our culture, why should I identify with that as a disciple? And I want to show you the logic and motivation for doing just that. First, personal sacrifice. Write down those two words. Number one, personal sacrifice. That's a great logic and motivation for committing yourself to Jesus Christ in the truest sense of the word. In Mark chapter 8, verse 35, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now, here's what we've got to learn to do as disciples of Jesus. We, we've got to wait, make sure that we weigh the present against the future, right? We've got to make sure that we do that. The word life here refers to the core of one's existence, it refers to the inner life. It's that part of man which wills and thinks and feels. This word life can also be translated as soul, S-O-U-L. The only way to save one's life is to lose it. Now, that's a paradox, isn't it? To save your life, you've got to be willing to lose it. What did Jesus mean? 
Well, he talks about those unwilling to surrender their lives to Jesus, choosing instead to cling to their sin and their agenda and their will and their way and their ambition. And the Bible says that one day they will lose their souls. They will lose their souls. And then he speaks of those who are willing to abandon everything for the sake of Jesus and his gospel. And he said, they will save their lives. I love what Jim Elliott said, the martyred missionary to the Aka Indians. Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. See, see Jesus here in, in the, verse 35 is talking about profit loss, profit loss, right? Giving and keeping. Now, listen to me very carefully. The most important thing you can do in your life is commit yourself to Jesus as a true disciple. That's the most important thing you can do. And you've got to understand this now, that in order to save your life, according to Jesus, you've got to be willing to lose it. In Philippians 3.8, Paul um, Gave, gave us an example of this. He said, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. See, here's what we've got to do as disciples. We, we've got to make sure that we weigh the present against the future. In Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. The true disciple has died to the old way of life. And the true disciple embraces the new life that he has through regeneration and the salvation that Jesus has so graciously provided for him commitment to jesus is logical it is logical and it motivates the believer to live a life of personal sacrifice but secondly it's logical and it motivates a believer to live a life with spiritual focus number two spiritual focus look at mark 8 36 and 37 for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So why should you commit yourself to Jesus? That's a $64,000 question. Jesus puts it in term of a profit-loss situation. Imagine this. Suppose that you could gain all of the world's riches. I mean, you had everything you could ever dream that you wanted. I mean, everything. You've got money galore. You've got material possessions running out the wazoo. You've got everything this world could possibly offer. You have pleasure. You have money. You've got everything. You got it all. What will it profit a man? To gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul. 
Does that make sense to you? Is that logical? Is it logical to spend your life, that this pittance of a, a time that we will live on this earth, chasing all this world can give you, making sure that you've got everything you could ever dream, think, or imagine, you got all the pleasure, all the food, you got all the, 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 the houses, the cars, you've got everything. Does it make sense to do that knowing that one day you're going to die and you're going to step into eternity and that your little life is like a, like a, a, a pinhead compared to eternity? that make sense no see jesus is using great logic here isn't he great logic so he's talking about spiritual focus listen i, I read about a a very famous person recently who had money they had the money to buy the most beautiful home with the best view imaginable. They had cars. They had everything. But they died. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What's the compensation? There is no compensation for your soul. Once you step out of this life, my friend, you don't get a do-over. You don't get a do-over. Once you step out of this life, my friend, you don't get a mulligan. Once you step out of this life, that's it. Either you invested your life for Jesus or you wasted your life on the things of this world. And there's some of you in this room today, there's some of you who are listening to me, and that's exactly the road you're traveling down. You're not committed to Jesus. You're committed to making sure that you have the best of this life. I tell you, friend, you can have the best of this life, and you can have the worst of eternity. What's your choice? Don't you see it is logical to choose Jesus, to commit your life to Jesus, it's logical. Jesus told a story about a rich man. And this rich man was very productive, and his land had been very productive, and he had a bumper crop. And he, he said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to build larger barns, and I'm going to pack everything into my larger barns. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? It's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. The most important part of you can't be seen. I'm talking about your inner life, your soul. To be committed to Jesus means that one must focus on the spiritual, not the temporal. There is no compensation for losing your soul. So what is a true disciple? A true disciple is committed to Jesus. And that involves 
personal sacrifice. It involves spiritual focus. And number three, it involves courageous devotion. Courageous devotion. Look at verse 38. Jesus said, here's another one of those fours here, F-O-R. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The confidence of Jesus literally leaps off of these pages. He knows his true identity. He knows his life purpose. He plainly told his disciples and the crowd that he would suffer, that he would die on a cross, that he would be raised from the dead. Now he speaks of his glorious second coming and the judgment to come. You do understand that the Bible said it is appointed unto man once to die and then comes the judgment. Friend, you're not going to live forever. You are not going to live forever. One day you are going to die. And one day, you will stand before Jesus in judgment. And the Bible says right here, look look at it. The Bible says right here, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus knew that the scribes and Pharisees and their many followers were ashamed of him, and they were ashamed of his teaching. He calls them the sinful and adulterous generation. Friend, we live in a sinful and adulterous generation ourselves. We live in a generation that hates the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in a generation that hates the Word of God. And we have to ask ourselves... Are we prepared to swim upstream in this adulterous and sinful generation? Are we prepared to show courageous devotion to Jesus, to stand up for Jesus and to stand up for his word in this kind of culture that we live in today? Committing yourself to Jesus is not something you can keep hidden. It's not. If you're really committed to Jesus, people will know it. Let me ask you, are you ashamed of Jesus? I mean, are you ashamed of Jesus when some preacher stands up or or, or someone says that there's only one way to heaven, it's through Jesus, and and you're ashamed because you believe that there are many ways to God, that, that you can go the Hindu way, you can go the Muslim way, you can go this way, you can go the Buddhist way. Are, are you ashamed of Jesus for his claim of exclusivity, of being the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to the Father but through him. I'm not ashamed of him. I'm proud of him. I love Jesus. I believe Jesus. I'm devoted to Jesus. Let me ask you, are you willing to take a stand for Jesus in this culture? Let let me ask you another thing. Are you ashamed of the Word of God? Are you ashamed of the Word of God when it speaks against the gender confusion that's taking place in this culture today? Or are you ashamed of the Word of God when it speaks against homosexuality and the movement of the LGBTQ movement today? Are you ashamed of the Word of God? I'm not ashamed of the Word of God. 
I believe it is God's truth without mixture of error. I believe it from Genesis to Revelation. And my friend, listen, if you're a true disciple of Jesus, if you're committed to Jesus, you can't be ashamed of him and his word. You've got to be willing to stand up for Jesus, even if you catch all of the arrows of the enemy in the front and in the back. You've got to stand up for Jesus. In Romans 14, 12, the Bible says, So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Each one of us. If you're lost, you're going to stand before Jesus in judgment. If you're saved, you're going to stand before Jesus in another kind of judgment. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. I'll tell you this. If you're not ashamed of Jesus and his words, if you are courageously devoted to Jesus, he will reward you someday. And I'll tell you, whatever you face in this world will be nothing compared to the reward you receive from the Lord Jesus and the well done from the lips of the Master. Speaking of a true disciple, I want to tell you about Sahil and his wife. Both of them grew up in Muslim families. She believed in Jesus and she eventually led her husband to faith in Jesus. Their families threatened their lives and literally forced them to leave their community. They had to run for their lives. Well, where they ran for their lives, they just kept growing spiritually, reading the Bible, praying, developing as a stronger and stronger disciple, deeper in their commitment to Jesus. And one day, they decided they would reach out to their families again. They wanted to see if they could reconnect with their family. And the family sort of opened the door a little bit, so they went back to their village, their community. And, and Sahil dropped his wife off at her family's house for her to have a meal with her family, and he went to have a meal with his family. So Sahil's wife was in here having a dinner with her family when suddenly she dropped dead. You know what her mom and dad did? They poisoned her. They poisoned their own daughter, and they killed her. She was a true disciple. She was willing to live for Jesus, and she was willing to die for Jesus. And I tell you, Sahil's wife in glory is going to be rewarded with a martyr's reward for her faith in Jesus, for her courageous devotion to Jesus, for her personal sacrifice, for her spiritual focus. So let me ask you a question. Are you a true disciple of Jesus? Are you a true disciple of Jesus? Did you make a decision back there when you were eight years old? And it's not made any difference in the world how you live. Can I tell you this? If your faith has not made any difference in the way you live, what do you think it's going to mean to God? Listen, friend, there's, salvation is free. It's free. 
won't cost you a dime. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. He paid it all. He's done everything necessary to save you. You don't have to jump through any kind of religious hoops to be saved. But you do have to repent of your sin and invite Jesus into your heart as your personal Savior and Lord. And if you haven't done that, I want to invite you to do that today. You come to one of our staff members, and you just say to them, I want to be saved. I'm going to invite our staff members to come right now. This is a very important moment in your life. Come to Jesus. Now, listen to me. I I, I said salvation is free, but I want to say a word to believers. Salvation is costly. If you're truly saved, one day it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. You may lose a friend because you took a stand for Jesus. It it may cost you a, a business deal. It may cost you a job. But one day, listen, friend, you're going to find out that salvation is costly. Being a disciple will cost you. But can I tell you this? It's worth it. It is worth it. A million times over, it is worth it. So I'm going to invite believers to come to this altar. You know, as believers like Sahil and his wife, they were gloriously saved, and they grew in their commitment to Jesus until Sahil's wife paid with her own life. Listen, if you're a born-again believer, if you're a true disciple of Jesus, your commitment to Jesus ought to grow over the years. It ought to grow. You ought to be more committed to Jesus today than you were last year. So I'm going to invite you to come to the altar and just ask the Lord Jesus to really help you in this area of personal sacrifice, to really help you to have a spiritual focus and to really help you have a courageous devotion to Jesus that would give you the power and strength to face whatever this culture could throw at you. Just come and pray this altar. Ask Jesus to do that in your life. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you so much for this incredible passage of Scripture. Lord, I pray that today some soul would be gloriously saved. I pray today that some believer will take the next step in their commitment to you, Lord Jesus. Be glorified and exalted in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and you come as God leads you.